Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. got a Bible, let's go to the book of Matthew chapter 2, and uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time there this morning. Um, <clears throat> we, uh, next week, will be diving into a series uh, and, and going through the book of Colossians. And uh, Colossians has, for a long time, been one of my favorite books of the Bible, and even more recently has been one that God has used uh, to speak to my heart and give me hope in significant ways. And uh, in 20-plus years of, of teaching the Bible, I've never taught through the book of Colossians, and so really excited uh, to dive into that together um, starting next week for the season uh, of Epiphany. Um, today is on the church calendar, the 12th day of Christmas. It's actually a real thing um, that the song was based on. And if you've been following along in our Enter the Storybook, uh, you know that in the church calendar, Christmas isn't just a day, but it's actually a season uh, that lasts 12 days. And so uh, we don't have 12 drummers drumming today. Um, but around the world, followers of Jesus are celebrating the, the final day of Christmas. A lot of times, in traditions, this is the day that you take down your Christmas decorations. So if you just thought you were being lazy, you're actually just being historical. Um, if you still have your Christmas stuff up, that's okay. Um, today is also known as Epiphany Eve. Uh, tomorrow is the Epiphany. And uh, the story that is told um, at this point in the calendar is the story of the Magi, the story that Aaron read for us from Matthew chapter 2. And uh, it's the kind of the transitional story between the season of Christmas and the season of Epiphany. Um, we've, most of us are pretty familiar with this story, um, and so familiar, in fact, that there's parts of the story that we know, um, or are, 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 uh, that we believe, that actually aren't even in the text, right? So, um, for example, the Magi weren't kings. Um, we're never told that there's three of them. Um, they weren't from Orientar. They, <laughs> come on, that's pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> And uh, most importantly, historically, they weren't at the manger. They weren't at the nativity scene. Um, and so I'm uh, sorry to burst some of your bubbles that way. Um, but uh, nevertheless, these, this story does play a significant role in the gospel account. And so uh, today we're going to spend a few minutes um, in Matthew 2 and looking at the significance of the Magi and this uh, mission that they're on to find Jesus and the quest before them, which is to worship Christ. I just want to focus in on verse 11 for now. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Amongst all the other things that are going on in this narrative, this is a story about what it means to worship Jesus. What it means 
to look for him, to seek him, and to bow down before him. What it means to offer our very selves as a gift to him. And in order to explore this story a little bit further, I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I want to read you a story. And this is a story that I read to my family, to my kids, every year around this time. And I want to share it with you this morning as well. This is a story that's both for young and for old, both for kids and adults, both for new believers and for seasoned saints. It's also a story that's equal parts cute and cutting. And I might even say equal parts devotional and political. The question of this story is what does it look like to bring our worship to Christ? What does it look like to offer God the kinds of gifts that he actually desires from us? So, this may be a little weird, but you guys all listen to like podcasts and audiobooks and stuff anyways, right? Just pretend you're doing that. This story is called The Secret of the Gifts. It's by a guy by the name of Paul Flukey. It'll take about 15 minutes as I read this story to you, so get comfortable. <clears throat> the story's been told for centuries now. The story of Gaspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, and the gifts they brought to the newborn king. And how they saw the star and followed it for weeks across mountain and valley and desert. In stately procession on their swaying beasts, they came and placed their treasures at the feet of the infant Savior. And what were their gifts? Oh, you say, everybody knows that. They brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. So since the earliest of days, the story has been told. But there you're wrong. The story is incomplete. You see, the story was told by those who had seen the wise men on their journey and by those who stood in wonderment as the wise men dismounted from their weary camels and strode to the door of the rude stable. They watched as the wise men held their jeweled caskets high before them. That much the world saw. So the story has been told. But that's not the whole story. And if you listen carefully and very quietly, you will hear the rest of it. You'll hear what happened when the wise men entered the stable, and you'll learn the secret of the gifts. The first of the three visitors to approach the stable was Gaspar. His cloak was of the finest velvet, trimmed with flawless fur. At his waist and throat were clusters of gems, for Gaspar was a wealthy man. Those who watched saw only that he paused at the stable door. He prays, they whispered to one another as they saw Gaspar's lips moved. But they were mistaken. They could not see that it was the angel Gabriel guarding the holy place before whom Gaspar stopped. And who are you? Gabriel asked in a voice that was firm but not unkind. I am Gaspar, and I come to worship the king, he replied. All who enter here must bring a gift, said Gabriel. Have you a gift? Indeed I have, said Gaspar, and he held out 
a finely wrought box. It was small, yet so heavy that his arms could hardly raise it. I have brought bars of the finest gold. Your gift, said Gabriel somberly, must be the essence of yourself. It must be something precious to your soul. Such have I brought, answered Gaspar confidently, the hint of a smile upon his lips. So shall it be, said Gabriel, and he too smiled as he held the door for Gaspar to enter. And there, before the rough board wall of the stable, lay the king he had traveled so far to see. The light of the lamp fell across the tiny face and glinted back from the dark, bright eyes. In the shadows sat the parents, motionless and silent. And before them, Gaspar sensed the presence of sheep and oxen who stood their reverent watch. Gaspar advanced a step and then another. He was just about to lay his gold before the child when he stopped and stood erect. There in his outstretched hand lay not gold, but a hammer. Its scarred and blackened head was larger than a man's fist, and its handle was of sinewy wood as long as a man's forearm. But, but, Gasper stammered as he stared dumbfounded at the heavy tool, and then softly from behind him he heard the voice of Gabriel. So shall it be, and so it is, said the angel. You have brought the essence of yourself. Gaspar turned indignantly. A hammer? What foul magic is this? None but the magic of truth, replied Gabriel. What you hold in your hands is the hammer of your greed. You have used it to pound wealth from those who labor so that you may live in luxury. You have used it to build a mansion for yourself while others dwell in huts. You have raised it against friends and made them into enemies and against enemies to destroy them. And suddenly, Gaspar knew the truth. Bowed with shame, he turned toward the door to leave. But Gabriel blocked his way. No, no, he said. You have not offered your gift. Give this, Gaspar blurted in horror, looking at the hammer. I cannot give this to a king. But you must, Gabriel. Gabriel replied, that's why you came. And you can't take it back with you. It's too heavy. You've carried it for many years, and even now your arms ache with its weight. You must leave it here, or it will destroy you. And once again, Gaspar knew the angel spoke the truth. But still he protested. The hammer's too heavy, he said. Why, the child cannot lift it. He's the only one who can, replied the angel. But it's dangerous. He might bruise his hands or feet. That worry, said Gabriel, you must leave to heaven. The hammer shall find its place. Slowly, Gaspar turned to where the Christ child lay. And slowly, he placed the ugly hammer at the baby's feet. Then he rose and turned to the door, pausing only for an instant to look back at the tiny Savior before he rushed outside. The waiting world saw only the smile that wreathed Gaspar's face as he emerged from the stable. His hands were raised as though the wings of angels graced his fingers. That much the world saw, and so the story is told. Next to, the next to step to the door of the stable was Melchior, the learned Melchior. 
He was not so resplendent as Gaspar, for he wore the darker robes of a scholar. But the length of his beard and the furrows of his brow bespoke of one who had lived long with the wisdom of the ages. A hush fell over the onlookers as he too paused before the door. But only Melchior could see the angel who stood guard. Only Melchior could hear him speak. What have you brought? asked Gabriel. And Melchior replied, I bring frankincense, the fragrance of hidden lands and bygone days. Your gift, cautioned Gabriel as he had done before, must be something that is precious to your soul. Of course it is, restored Melchior. Then enter and we shall see. And Gabriel opened the door. Melchior stood breathless before the scene within. In all his many years of searching for elusive truth, he had never sensed a presence as this. He knelt reverently, and from beneath his robe, he withdrew the silver flask of precious ointment. But then he drew back and stared. The vessel in his hand was not silver at all. It was common clay, rough and stained as might be found in the humblest cupboard. Aghast, he pulled the stopper from its mouth and sniffed the contents. Then he leapt to his feet only to face the angel at the door. I've been tricked, he said, spitting the words with fury. This is not the frankincense I brought. What is it then? asked Gabriel. It is vinegar, Melchior snarled as though it were a curse. So shall it be, and so it is, said Gabriel. You have brought what you're made of. You're an angel of fools, Melchior snorted. But Gabriel went on, you bring the bitterness of your heart. The soured wine of a life turned grim with jealousy and hate. You have carried within you the memory of old hurts. You have hoarded your resentments and breathed on sparks of anger until they become as embers smoldering within you. You have sought for knowledge, but you have filled your life with poison. As he heard these words, Melchior's shoulders dropped. He turned his face away from Gabriel and fumbled with his robe as though to hide the earthen jar. Silently, he crept toward the door. Gabriel smiled gently, placed his hand on Melchior's arm. Wait, he said, you must leave your gift. Melchior sighed with a pain that came from deep within him. How I wish I could. How long have I yearned to empty my soul of its bitterness? You have spoken the truth, my friend, but I cannot leave it here, not at the feet of love and innocence. But you can, said Gabriel, and you must if you would be clean. This is the only place you can leave it. But this is vile and bitter stuff, Melchior protested. What if the child should touch it to his lips? You must leave that worry to heaven, Gabriel replied. There is use even for vinegar. So Melchior placed his gift before the Savior, and they say that when he came out of the stable, his eyes shone with the clearest light of heaven's truth. His skin was as smooth as a youth's as he lifted his face to gaze on horizons he had never seen before. And in that, at least, the story is correct. There was yet one more visitor to make his offering. He strode forward now, his back as straight as a tree, shoulders firm as an oaken beam. He walked as one born to command. This was Balthazar, 
leader of many legions, scourge of walled cities. Before him, as he grasped it by its handle of polished ebony, he carried a brass-bound box. A murmur ran through those who watched as they saw him hesitate before the door. Look, they whispered, even the great Balthazar pays respect before the king who waits within. But we know that it was Gabriel who caused the warrior to pause. And we know, too, the question that he asked. Have you a gift? Of course, answered Balthazar. I bring a gift of myrrh, the most precious booty of my boldest conquest. Many have fought and died for centuries for such as this. It is the essence of the rarest herb. But is it the essence of yourself, asked Gabriel? It is, replied the general. Then come, said the angel, and we shall see. Even the fearless Balthazar was not prepared for the wave of awe that struck him as he entered the holy place of the Christ child. He felt a weakness in his knees such as he had never known before. Closing his eyes, he knelt and shuffled through the straw in reverence. Then bowing until his face was near the ground, he slowly released his grip upon the handle of the box and raised his head and opened his eyes. What lay before him at the baby's feet was his own spear. Its smooth, round staff still glistened where the sweat of his palms had moistened it. And the razor edges of its steely tip caught the flickering light of the lamp. It cannot be, Balthazar whispered hoarsely. Some enemy has cast a spell. That is more true than you know, said Gabriel softly from behind him. A thousand enemies have cast their spell on you and turned your soul into a spear. You speak in riddles, cried Balthazar, turning to face the angel. I'll teach you not to jest at a time like this. And he raised his fist as if to strike. Gabriel did not flinch as he continued. Living only to conquer, you have been conquered. Each battle you win leads you only to another, with a foe yet more formidable. Do you think I like to kill, demanded Balthazar? You angels know nothing of this world. I'm the defender of my people. Were it not for my spear leading them into battle, we should have been destroyed long ago. Why, even now, the enemy is massing to invade us. As soon as I leave this holy place, I must raise more armies. I must buy more spears to arm them and... More? Gabriel interrupted quietly. More than what? Why, more than we have now. More than our enemies have. And what will they do then? Asked the angel softly. Will your enemies, too, need more? Balthazar heard the angel's words as they seemed to echo in the deepest places of his soul, as though vaguely familiar. Was this the question, one, was this question one that he had asked sometime of himself? Was it the faintest flicker of doubt quickly stifled by the one who did not dare to doubt? For a moment, Balthazar hesitated, Taking control of himself, he reached down, grasped his spear, and turned toward the door. I cannot leave this here, he said. My people need it. We cannot afford to give it up. Are you sure, asked Gabriel, that you can afford to keep it? But our enemies will destroy us if we drop our spears, Balthasar replied impatiently. We cannot take that risk. Yes, it is a risk, Gabriel replied slowly. 
but your way is a certainty, a certainty of spears. Once again, Balthasar hesitated, and once again the sweat of his palm moistened the smooth shaft of the spear. But now the beads stood out on his forehead as well, as the force of Gabriel's words did battle with centuries of warrior instinct. A long moment passed. Finally, Balthazar loosed his grip and the spear dropped towards the floor. But as he looked at the child at his feet, he whispered anxiously to Gabriel, but here, is it safe to leave it here? The angel released a long-held breath as he whispered back. This is the only safe place to leave it. But he's a child, and the spear is sharp. It could pierce his flesh. That fear you must leave to heaven, Gabriel replied. And they say that Balthazar went calmly from the stable, his arms hanging gently at his sides, they say that he walked first to Gaspar and Melchior, where they waited and embraced them as brothers. Then turning to the others who watched, he went first to the one and then to the next, enfolding each in his outstretched arms as one greeting beloved friends, who he has not seen for a very long time. So that, at least, is how the story's always been told. And it's true as far as it goes, but you have listened well, and now you know the whole of it. Now, you too may kneel before the Christ child to leave at his feet those unseen secret things that may be left nowhere else but there. And having, and having visited the holy place, you too, like those three visitors of old, may go on your way made new. But what of their gifts, you ask? What of the hammer and the vinegar and the spear? Well, there's another story about them and how they were seen once more, years later, in fact, on a lonely hill outside Jerusalem. But do not worry. That is a burden heaven took upon itself, as only heaven can and will, even to this very day. The Secret of the Gifts by Paul Flukey. In our last couple minutes, I want us to wrestle with the text upon which this story is based and the message <clears throat> that the Spirit, I believe, would have for us today. As we bring the question here this morning, what does it truly look like to live a life of worship? What does it look like to bring the kinds of gifts that God actually desires. In many ways, it simply could be summed up with this deep yearning, this honest longing of our hearts to want to know, God, are we okay? 
Is there something that you want from me or that you're looking for in me? Is there something you desire of my life that hasn't yet come about? Is there part of me that hasn't been offered to you? And are we all right? Fluky story in a brave and creative way reminds us of the very essence of the gospel. The very essence of how it is that we are reconciled to God through Christ. And the way of empty religion is to think that my performance, my perfection, my hard work, my self-discipline, my moral purity, my best efforts is what God desires. And if I can come before him having done my very best and tried my very hardest, then he, we must be okay. Which goes against the exact message of the gospel, right? What God desires of us is not our performance or our perfection, not even our hard work or best efforts. What he's looking for is our true self our weakness, our brokenness, our failures, our doubts, and all. For centuries, God's people have wrestled with this question. What is the act of worship? What is the offering that God truly desires? And for many, many years, God's people assumed that the thing God was really after was a blood offering. So they'd bring their sacrifices, their animals to the temple and offer them to God for the forgiveness of their sins. But there was this growing suspicion among those who knew the heart of God best, like in Psalm 51. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you, God will not despise. And so for the, the first question I would bring to you this morning is what is the gift that Christ is inviting you to come and to lay at his feet today? Not the gift of your record, your performance, your best efforts and your hard work but the gift of your brokenness, your addiction, your sin, your fear, your failure. Would you honor Jesus that much that you would be willing to trust him with the most difficult and shameful parts of your soul and your story. He's inviting us to bring our whole selves to him today. And one final word. Regarding the world that we find ourselves living in. I'm choosing these words carefully 
and don't try to misunderstand me. Pay attention to the threat that the Christ child poses to the empire in Matthew chapter 2. When Jesus shows up in the world, verse 3 tells us that Herod was disturbed. Throughout the story, Herod pretends that he is serving Christ, but it's clear that he's serving himself. He basically claims that God is on his side and he poses as a worshiper of Jesus. And it even appears that he tricked some of the wise men initially into believing that he was one of them. But in the end, Herod's was a kingdom of greed, not the kingdom of generosity. In the end, Herod's was a kingdom of fear, not the kingdom of love. And in the end, Herod's was a kingdom of violence, not the kingdom of peace. See, another way of understanding worship is not just as devotion, but is as allegiance. The Magi had to choose which king they would pledge their allegiance to. Herod or Jesus. They couldn't do both. So what I want to say is that whatever your politics are, whether you lean right or lean left, I don't really care. We are gathered here today as those whose first citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And we as the church ought to be the one place in all of creation where the lordship of Jesus is unopposed. We pledge our allegiance to Christ and to his kingdom, a kingdom of generosity, love, and peace. We trust in him. We give ourselves to him. We pledge our allegiance to him. We worship him. Will you stand as we close in prayer? Father God, the one whom Jesus calls Abba, Daddy, thank you that you have brought us into yourself, that you have saved us from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light, from a kingdom of death into a kingdom of life. We are grateful for the grace that has been given to us, the grace that is Jesus. Not just what he gives us, but who he is in the gift of himself. And so in faith, in obedience, in worship, and in adoration this morning, we offer our whole selves to you. We trust you with the broken, messy, unresolved, unfinished parts of our lives and our hearts. 
we come to this table with empty hands, not offering you anything, but coming to receive life from you again and commune with you and your son and your spirit. And we declare again this morning our allegiance to the kingdom of your son, the kingdom that has already come and is still coming, the kingdom that's not from this world. We are your called out ones, set apart. And though we are flawed, though we are broken, though we are in daily need for grace and restoration ourselves, we also know that you've invited us and sent us to be agents and ministers of reconciliation in your world. So we pray for peace. We pray for peace on earth as it is in heaven, in central Oregon and all around the world. May your kingdom come, your will be done, and may we be your people in this place at this time by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.